podcast time, mate. Come on, you said you were going to do this. Come on, stop sulking and shuffling over. <laughs> right, headphones on, take a seat. Oh, that's right, you can't sit. All right, stand there then, see if I care. Oh, come on, there's no need to be like that. You know what I mean? Put the cards down, let's get on with it. Let's bygones be bygones. We're going to be professional, right? Nah, that's not how it's going to work, Bob. No, no, come on, come on, Bob, get off, get off! Bob, come on, man, there's no time for this! Bob, we've got a podcast and record! Bob, pack it in! Hello everybody, welcome to the Bumper End of Year 2021 podcast. Uh, these podcasts are always really popular, as are the podcasts generally, right? And, and I know that I haven't got as many of these out to you as I should have done over the last year or so. I've been super busy with all kinds of things, uh, uh, but I, I will make sure that I'll, I'll redouble my efforts. Hopefully there'll be more podcasts in, in 2022. But these end of year ones, uh, people always really enjoy, and, and I really enjoy producing them. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who submitted questions and topics they wanted me to talk about. Uh, as a, as before, these questions were great, uh, really got me thinking. Uh, hopefully you find my answers interesting. As I always say with these things, I, I'm not saying that my answer is the right answer, it's just my answer. It's up to you to decide whether you agree or disagree with my viewpoint, but either way, hopefully you find the discussion uh, interesting. Now, if you're new to the end of the year podcast, there's a couple of things I need to explain. So the first thing is, you may have wondered what the hell was all that intro about with me and Bob. <laughs> um, so if you missed the Bob thing, um, during the pandemic, I'm using my body opponent bag as an uki when I'm teaching online. And a few people started joking, saying, poor Bob, I feel sorry for Bob. And I thought it was funny that they were ascribing a, a personality to Bob. And then I thought, I can run with this. So, so uh, those will remember I put a video out of Bob holding up cards with writing on it, you know, saying how much he hated me and, you know, he, he didn't want to be Mayuki and how come he'd ended up here. And people found that funny, right? And because they found it, found it funny and started to sympathise with Bob, I thought, I can't have that. I can't have them sympathising with Bob. So I, I did one where uh, Bob was drunk and, and turned up late for an online session and people found that funny. And then I did one where Bob kind of attacked me and strangled me while we were having coffee. And I did, I did a few of these, me and Bob weightlifting together. I, I did a few of these ones because my dark sense of humour found it the idea of this dysfunctional relationship these two characters, me and Bob, been forced to live together during the pandemic with a mutual hatred developing over time, I thought was quite funny. It reminded me of Steptoe and Son, for those in the UK who are old enough to remember that, you know, this father and son forced to live together by circumstances who can't stand one another. So I, I thought, yeah, there's a dark element to that. And the fact that Bob is not real and clearly is not real, the fact he's, you know, a, a, a plastic dummy, and the fact that I'm talking to him, the subtext of my own mental demise there. <laughs> Which, which, you know, is this real or is this all in Ian's head? So that, again, appealed to my dark sense of humour. So uh, people seem to have really enjoyed those. In fact, you know, when I've started travelling again as the pandemic sees for doing seminars, the amount of people have asked me, so how's Bob doing? I think it's just brilliant, right? Really like it. So you've got dark sense of humour too. So a few people have asked, is, is Bob going to be on the end of your podcast? 
Well, well, how can Bob be on the end of your podcast? He doesn't speak. He just holds up cards. I thought, oh, I know how Bob can be on the end of your podcast. So throughout this podcast, there's these various Bob's bits where I ask Bob for his opinion on the questions. And, and as you'll see, Bob actually ends up speaking towards, towards the end. But hopefully you find these funny and the development of it funny as well. So if you don't know who Bob is, I've explained it to you. And hopefully now it'll make <laughs> It'll make as much sense as it's ever going to make. Also, as is traditional in these end of year podcasts, I always have uh, dumb adverts from sponsors and things like that, you know, just making fun of various things. So so this year I've done it slightly differently because we have one company who is our sponsor um, throughout and based on the Hikate theme. So, um, again, I think a lot of you will be aware of this, but I put a video out years ago about how the idea of pulling the hand of the hip for power generation was nonsense. There are good practical reasons to pull the hand of the hip when you're gripping and controlling, but the power generation thing I just didn't buy. Um, I mean, it's just biomechanically and wrong even from the point of view of physics. Um, but the conversations that that sparked and the pushback, were, you know, eventually ended up becoming something of a meme within the practical karate community. It became something that... Um, people kind of gravitated around yeah. so I decided to make them all Hikate based but again you need to know that to get the joke <laughs> so they always say it's a bad joke if you've got to explain it but I've got that out the way to start with so yeah okay without further ado let's get into the, the, the meat of it then let's let's start talking about the, the questions so we've got um, again as usual I've divided them into categories we've got self-defense training teaching uh, Katrin Bunkai uh, miscellaneous questions the, the, the usual kind of categories I've tried to put the questions into the category that they they fit with best but obviously in some cases they could drop into more than one but again great questions this year I, I, I genuinely think this is my favorite one of these end of year ones in terms of the the topics that we discuss and, and the questions that are asked i really like this one because uh, obviously i've already recorded it and listened to it back right but i'm i'm very happy with it and i hope that you enjoy it too so without further ado let's get on to the uh, self-defense questions Let's start with the self-defense questions. The first one is from Daniel Marino. If you don't know Daniel, you should be following his stuff on YouTube uh, and elsewhere. But the Nahanchi Project, excellent stuff on, on Katnabunkai and how it should be drilled. Really good. So make sure you, you're aware of that. And Daniel's question is, how can we limit our practice to make it safe while av avoiding creating bad habits for fighting and self-protection? What can we do to create the muscle memory that will help us survive a criminal attack? Drawing directly from Jeff Thompson on these questions. It's a really interesting question, that. And it's more complex than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Because we are always making some compromises in the name of safety. And if we're not, if we're making no compromises at all, then that's no longer realistic training. That's a real event. <laughs> You know, people will get hurt and traumatized through that. And obviously that's what we're trying to avoid, you know. So creating more dangerous situations to expose our students to isn't the best of ideas. So we make these compromises. And then what we need to do is firstly shine a bright light on those compromises. So the students are fully aware they are there. So to give an example, if we were doing a live drill, 
Students are padded up, and you say to the students, right, control your punches. Well, that's a compromise that's been made there, uh, and you need to point that out to them. Look, we're controlling the punches here for safety. Obviously, in uh, real situations, in the interest of realism, we should be practicing hitting hard. Now, later on, what we'll do is we'll go up the pads, and then you'll say to the students, well, right, now what you're doing is you're hitting a pad, not a person. So, you know, the accuracy, the placement, the, the fact that it's a pad and not a human body, uh, these are all safety compromises too. However, we can now hit these things with full power, which is something we couldn't do before in the sparring. So I call this the, the training matrix, that the compromises we make in one drill are not the same compromises we're making in another drill, so that we de uh, develop all of the things uh, required for uh, effective self-protection so the students will drop to these on on instinct and, and again th th there always is that danger of course that if they're training with control when sparring they may throw the punch with control in an actual situation so we need to make sure our pad drills are such that that realistic that they put the students under stress and they get used to that idea of when i'm under stress i throw these you know big powerful ballistic shots but it is it is it is a uh, a tricky one so that would be my, my my key bits of advice is make sure that everything that's required um for a, a violent encounter is covered they won't all be covered in the same drill, otherwise that would be a very dangerous, uh, unproductive drill. When you make the compromises, make sure, again, students are fully aware of what they are, and then, again, make sure you're applying the uh, the training matrix to that process. Uh, one thing, as well, that's worth mentioning, uh, it's important, but I'll mention it as an aside, it's not just physical danger as well, um, especially if people have prior trauma from events. Um, training that is... Uh, so realistic it's, it's it's almost real can help compound and trigger that trauma as well so it, th there's lots to consider but but i think the key thing is always make sure that you know we, we do have these compromises in place that the same compromises aren't in place for every drill and we shine a big bright light on them next question is from t klinger he said what have you learned from modern self-protection systems krav maga for example and fighting systems like mma that you've added to your karate to improve it well i've never studied either of those I, i've trained alongside krav maga practitioners and mma practitioners uh, but i've never formally studied krav maga or mma so i, I really can't answer that um, in the broader thing of self-protection, um, I did uh, and do obviously train um, uh, with uh, Peter Considine, who's leading light in this as one of my major influences, uh, my main instructor these days, uh, and also um, Jeff Thompson as well, of course. And one of the things I found quite early on that the things that they were emphasising that were needed to be effective in a self-protection situation were the same things the old masters of karate were recommending you needed to be uh, needed have in place to be effective in a self-protection scenario you know the the, the need to you know be, have awareness the need to preempt you know the need to seek escape you know there wasn't a thickness of a piece of paper i could get between uh, between the two so what i found by looking at these self-protection systems that the old school karate fulfilled that need for me now i'm not saying that old school karate is the ultimate
ultimate self-protection system. As, as with all things, you find the way of, that, that you like. But I like exploring the martial arts through the vehicle of karate. It's my preferred lens, if you like, through which to view the martial arts. I find it interesting and engaging. And because I find it so interesting and engaging, I keep doing it so I keep getting better. But I can't say I've learned anything uh, directly um, from them. I think, you know, when we look at like MMA as well, one of the great things about MMA is that it is uh, it's innovative. It, it will happily evolve, and if something's working, they'll have it. They'll, they'll bring it in. No one ever goes, that's not traditional MMA. You know, if it works, they start doing it. And that was what used to happen in karate. That's what should still be happening in um, karate today. And, of course, the great thing about MMA is they test everything. You know, it, it's always done with that element of life practice, which, again, I think is something that the traditional karate community could learn a lot from. Again, that testing needs to be relevant. A lot of MMA practitioners are, are fit young people with, you know, no health issues. And if you're teaching someone in their 60s and 70s or someone who has pre-existing conditions, you're going to have to modify that. But, you know, there's definitely good things all systems do that we can learn to. But I couldn't point to anything specific because I've never specifically trained in those uh, systems. Do you want slower punches? Do you wish your jaw was in several pieces instead of just one? Do you find basic body mechanics and physics confusing and prefer the simplicity of my sensei says? Then use an empty Hikate. Hikate Power Generation Limited was founded in 1966 in order to replace the practical and logical uses for the pulling hand that existed before that time. Hikate Power Generation Limited, making karate less effective for 55 years, the number one name in nonsense. Next one's from uh, Garth Gilmer. Um, Garth says, how do we improve the level of discussion around self-protection, especially for those who are neither young nor athletic? Combat sport coaches seem to bring one load of baggage and traditional martial arts another. Discussion on social media seem to make this worse, not better. Uh, see, I'm, I'm with you there, Garth. And this is Garth's background as well, for, and knowing personally, this is what he teaches. He's uh, heavily into the uh, self-defense and, and pragmatic side of things. Uh, yeah, and I know exactly what he means. You know, there are these two types of baggage so uh, a combat sport obviously they develop highly functional skills because they're, they're, they're testing those skills the, the, the problem with those skills is they're out of context and they're often limited to a specific skill set you know, so for example, you know, um, you could be fantastic at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a good puncher. And then, of course, there are things that combat sports don't cover. You know, the, the awareness stuff, personal safety things, knowledge of the law, um, escape skills, all that kind of stuff. A good combat sport, a sports athlete will be able to take those skills and, and adapt them if they're aware of the adaptations that need to be made. And of course, traditional martial artists, you know, which I put myself in that camp, there's definitely a load of baggage there as well. Um, primarily around what my friend Jamie Club calls pseudo-traditionalism, which is like the modern tradition. Oh, our techniques are too deadly to test and all this kind of bizarre bits and pieces. So th there are definite issues there. And self-protection, of course, is its, its own unique field of study. You know, we talked about this, for those who have listened to the Marshall Map, uh, podcast way back when 10 plus years ago um that uh, there's, there's an, a, a big element of self-protection which is neither covered by combat sports nor martial arts 
that you need to be aware of, you know, the things I've already mentioned and de-escalation and criminal behaviour and all these kind of things. And of course, these aren't skills, and these are highly effective self-protection skills, but these aren't skills that rely on your physical ability. That, that's all very much last resort stuff. So, you know, to give an example of this, I've, I've probably told you this one before, but there was once an occasion uh, where I was asked to do a self-defence course for the local women's institute, which is typically a, a group of more elderly uh, ladies. So, at the average age must have been minimum 70 plus you know most i would suggest were in the late 70s early 80s so i'm not going to go okay girls put the gloves on and let's tear it up and let's find out what works you know it'd be entirely inappropriate so when i did the self-protection stuff for them i'm looking primarily at these um softest skills looking at the crime statistics that are relevant for that particular demographic, you know, we're going through all, all that kind of stuff. We didn't do anything physical because it wasn't appropriate. Uh, the other thing as well is, even for those who are young and athletic, um, not all of them want to devote a lot of time to learning a combat sport or a martial arts. And I think this is another big mistake people make when they're teaching self-protection. So again, regularly get asked into uh, colleges and sc uh, schools, six forms and stuff, to, to teach uh, self-protection stuff. And in, in that field, you have got, you know, people in the primer life, you know, they, they are young and they are athletic, but they're not interested in devoting the next 10, 20, 30 years of their life to learning a martial art. They've got other things they want to do with their life. So when it comes to the physical side of things, what you're better off doing is teaching them very high percentage, very simple things that they can re rely on and take minimal training to maintain. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be able to, you know, outfight a, 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 a martial artist in a square goal or win combat sports of course it doesn't but but knowing how to deliver a good preemptive sh uh, slap n knowing um how to deliver rapid par meals in succession something as simple as that um can make the, the the difference between being able to escape and not and we can point to loads of real world examples where that's happened so in in terms of what we can do to make it better i mean we've just got to keep getting the message out there because th it's hard but we do see some successes you know, for me, for example, one of the things I've, I've noticed a lot recently is the distinction, and it's, you know, it's a distinction that everyone makes, but as far as I'm aware, I'm the one who started using the terms consensual violence and non-consensual violence, because I found those to be effective terms to demarcate between two combat athletes or martial artists choosing to have a fight, consensual violence, or non-consensual violence, which is, is criminal activity. I see those terms being used more and more now in, in all kinds of, of different places. So I have to feel, well, that message got out. you know, And, and I, I do see a lot of good stuff out there. So there's a way to go, but I think we're having some success and we just need to keep uh, keep pushing away at it. Next question is from uh, Edward Glenn. He says, outside of uh, karate, what self-protection skills do you actively train on a regular basis and how? Um, so my karate kind of includes that physical self-protection stuff by design. Um, so we're always drilling scenario-based stuff. We're always drilling escape skills, protecting others, uh, preemptive striking, escaping from groups. That's part of the karate. So I accept that for some, depending on how they define karate, it may not be, and they would need to train those things in addition. Uh, but those things are part of the karate that that I do. The other thing is as well is like sometimes it's not so much actively train them as actively do them. So you know, I, I I like to think you know that i'm i'm 
pretty aware of my surroundings. I'm constantly keeping up to date on the latest crime stats and figures. Um, I, I spend a lot of time um, um, researching criminal behaviour. Way more time than I watch seeing who's won the latest UFC or MMA bout. You know, it's it's it's, it's criminal behaviour that I, I tend to tend more time looking at. Um, so I'm fully up to date with that side of, of, of things. And then, of course, it's just how you live your day-to-day life. You know, I, 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 I'm very conscious of my home security, my mobile security. I'm not paranoid about it. I, I'm aware of the level of the risk. You know, I don't live in Fort Knox. I don't walk outside wearing a stab vest or whatever every single day because that would be psychologically unhealthy. But I do take sensible precautions on a regular basis. Um, I'm also someone who travels a lot. So when I, I, I travel, I tend to research the areas that I'm, I'm going to, make sure I'm aware of what's what, especially if I'm going to be solo and on my own so it's it's a lifestyle thing that self-protection is fully built into my karate and is also been built into my lifestyle doesn't mean i'm invulnerable doesn't mean i'm undefeatable you know just like anyone else i could do all the right things and still find myself in the wrong place at the wrong time but i actively do those things as well as actively practice them uh, within inside my karate again not to, i think it's worth emphasizing never to the extent of paranoia because that in itself is harmful sometimes the fear of crime can be harmful in and of itself so you do need to find that happy balance where the precautions you're taking are relevant to the threat um mitigate that threat but are still allowing you to leave you know a fun happy life where you're not looking for criminals under every bush bob's bitch bob uh, do you have any thoughts on the last one you agree with me entirely because I'm a straight-up legend. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Bob. Bob, that is what it says on the card, and you can wiggle it all you want. I think everyone listening will know that you always defer to me on such matters. Calm yourself down. Let's move on to the next question. Bob's bitch. Next one's from uh, Jonathan Brewster. Now, this one could have kind of fit into another category, but I, I think it's probably in its best place here. He said, you often say that karate kata are not intended for fighting trained fighters, but rather for self-defense against untrained but violent attackers. Uh, what then should the karate do against a trained assailant? So that's a really good question, right? Because you get that a lot. So people, there's an arrogance sometimes. I'm not suggesting for a second Jonathan's got this. I'm just talking generally. But there's an arrogance among martial artists that if someone is untrained, it means unskilled. Like Untrained simply means they haven't formally practiced the same martial art as you. I, I know, and I'm sure you know, some incredibly dangerous people who have never yet set, uh, set foot in a martial arts dojo or a MMA gym or a boxing gym or anything like that. Right? They are experienced and learned and highly efficient at the use of criminal violence uh, and, and criminal violence has that specific objective it's not about proving who's the best fighter it's about causing harm to you for whatever motivations they have for wishing uh, to cause you harm whether that's physical harm emotional harm financial harm that there's there's, there's some uh, harm that they wish to commit and the most efficient way for a criminal to use uh, violence as a tool is sudden unexpected overwhelming violence it's not to stand off and have a square go with you it, it, it makes no sense for them to do that so even if this criminal was let's say you know a highly trained tie boxer he still shouldn't and probably will not stand there and go right I'm involved in criminal behavior, but I'm not going to use criminal violence. I'm going to use consensual violence skills. So put your guard up and let's go. It, that's not efficient for him to do that. Um, 
you know, because you, you may have skills of your own or a skill the kicker and puncher as he is, you may be a really skilled grappler. His best bet is to use deception and intimidate you, overwhelm you with violence, overwhelm you with numbers, threaten you with, with weapons. So if the, the assailant is trained, it doesn't really make any difference because they're still engaging in criminal activity and your aim is still to get away from that. Now, the, the, you know, the longer it goes on and if it degenerates into like a, a full-on tussle, um, then again, their fighting skills are going to play more of a part. But it comes back to the key idea. When you're in self-protection... Uh, situation you don't know in a lot of times sometimes you will but in a lot of times you won't know what skills or experiences that other person has you know he may well be a better fighter than you so you don't fight them you know this is why you know you're looking to uh, escape not fight to a win you're looking to use preemption to facilitate that escape you know you'd use those escape skills so it doesn't really make any difference whether the assailant's trained or not um, when we're talking about untrained, which as Itosu says in his ten precepts, but we're just not talking about a consensual exchange with a single uh, opponent in whatever context. We're, we're talking about non-consensual violence where we're trying to escape that criminal. And if they're engaged in criminal behaviour, they will act in a way that's generally efficient for criminal behaviour. And therefore, you need to act in a way that's efficient in protecting yourself from that criminal uh, behaviour. It's like that old Funakoshi quote, you know, you don't need to win, you've just got to not lose, and that changes things radically. Next question is from Martin Goffin. He said, uh, we've had a few women join our club of late. My question is, how many club instructors actually listen to a female's point of view? It's normally what a male would do in an altercation, and our female should deal with it. We have found a few women's points of view can be very different from males. See, and this is a really good point. It's, it's um, unfortunately... The majority of martial arts instructors are male. There's plenty of really good female instructors out there, no loads. But but I think if we were looking at the numbers overall, we'd conclude that most of them are male. And therefore, if they have uh, experience of violence, it's going to be from a male point of view. Uh, and, and there'll be lots of issues you're not considering. So... One of the things I think is really important, exactly what Martin's saying, is male instructors need to shut up and listen. So if females are telling you about you know, their experience and, and how it differs, uh, we should listen to that and, and, and try and include it, especially if we've got uh, female students. Very important to, 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 to do that. You know, I, We've talked about this before as well, but if you look at the crime stats, the type of violence that men are more likely to be exposed to is very different from the type of violence that women are more likely to be exposed to. Now, of course, you know, by virtue of being human, you can be exposed to all types. Men can be victims of domestic violence too, right? You know, it, it's a fact. And women can be attacked by other drink drunk women that they don't know in the street. But statistically, um, in the UK at least, the most likely way for men and women to be killed is to be stabbed. That's where the commonality ends. Beyond that, uh, the male's typically going to be younger. It'll be in or around somewhere that serves alcohol and is likely to be kicked or punched to death. Uh, the, women, the woman is more likely to be strangled to death by someone she knows, uh, typically a, a partner, uh, in her own home. So, you know, you see a lot of male self-defense stuff teaching like in this almost barroom scenario. Well, that's not what's relevant or statistically most relevant for women as well. So, you know, we need to cover all of it. Of course, you know, everybody needs to learn everything. 
but but there are, are definite differences there and my advice to the male instructors and male students for that matter as well is you've got to shut up and listen you know when it comes to what happens to women the women are the experts so we need to listen to what they're they're, they're saying and try and make sure that any help that we're, we're trying to give is, is in line with their experiences New for 2022 from Hikate Limited, our new and improved Hikate. From previous levels of zero power, our new and improved Hikate delivers five times that. Don't understand the basic maths there? Great! New and improved Hikate is for you! Next one's from uh, Branko uh, Fudder. He said, with martial arts and self-defense being uh, different disciplines on the martial map, different but overlapping, I would add there, can self-defense still be incorporated into a martial arts class or should they always be taught separately? See, and again, this is a good point because most people come to martial arts classes to learn martial arts, right? And most people go to self-protection classes to learn self-protection. If you start teaching a kata, for example, or, you know, fancy footwork drills or takedowns and submissions, in a self-defense class you're not doing self-defense anymore you're doing martial arts if people come to a martial arts class and you're there with your projector and your powerpoint presentation and you're going through the ins and outs of crime law and violence statistics and keeping your home safe again that's not what people are there for so, so we've got to make sure we do teach them appropriately with a martial arts class the big advantage you've got is you're going to have them for a much longer period so typically, you know, people are going to train, if they get into it, they're going to train in it for, for years and years and years. So uh, we do do, with our very beginners, we do uh, escape still skills to start with. We, we, we do um, talk starting about uh, the fundamentals of awareness. That's part of what we, we drip in at that level. And as they go through the grades and as they... They come to the classes, these elements are always interwoven into what we do. So if we start teaching the physics of preemption, we'll start talking about the law surrounding it as well, you know. So uh, if we start doing, well, lots of different drills, we'll talk about these wider supporting skills too. So it gets interwoven into the class. There, there can be a place for deliberately saying, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about the law separately. You can certainly do that and it can be useful to do that. But you don't want to be doing that in every class. Because uh, self-defense, true self-defense, um, again, quote Jamie Club again, because he's just so great at coming up with phrases for this stuff. But he says, you know, it's like first aid, whereas in martial arts, you, you're learning to be like a, a, a surgeon of a specific type. You know, if your taekwondo is your thing, then you're the, the, the heart surgeon of kicking. If Brazilian jiu-jitsu is your thing, you're the brain surgeon of groundwork, right? We develop these high levels of martial arts skills too. But the, the true self-protection stuff has to be applicable to everybody, although martial artists obviously will, will do it at a higher level because they've spent more time practicing it. Um, so it wants to be fully interwoven to the class. They should be able to get those fundamental self-defense basics in and have them develop to a high level and still have time to move on to all the other fun elements of the martial arts um, you know, that we all know and love. Bob's bitch. So what are your thoughts on this issue, Bob? Oh, you've nothing to say. Well, fair enough. Bob, get off! Bob, put the card down! Look, look, it's fair enough you've got nothing to say. There isn't anything on the card, Bob, and the listeners can see that for themselves. Look, I know this is audio only, but people will still get it, Bob. Put it down! Bob, Bob, put it! Bob, off! Get off! Bob's bitch. Uh, next question is from David George. He said, in the self-protection space, there are a number of folks providing 
thought and content uh, and instruction who have, due to the nature of their work, some degree of credibility, work the doors of a club, work private security, work law enforcement, etc. And that's great because they can verify their teaching with real life experience. But I've never worked the door or in private security or law enforcement. I'm in my late 50s now. I don't, I could get uh, hired for any of those. Uh, can I even teach these subjects with credibility or am I fooling myself to even try? So, that, again, that's, that, it's, again, such a great question. So the short answer is, yeah, of course you can. Of, co- of course you can. Now, so what we do need to teach self-protection properly is we need knowledge of how real violence works. Now, in those examples that David has given, they will give examples of how violence works, but it's not the same for every one of them. So law enforcement, the the prison service, uh, private security, door work are all different. And that doesn't even cover you from civilian self-protection, where you've got no authority as such, apart from what the law gives you to protect yourself to use violence. And, and as we've mentioned previously, you've also got like the, you know the, the domestic violence issues as well which are an important part of, of, of self-protection in- instruction. But, you know, if you work the door, you're going to have no experience of that. So it's, it's some, you, you, know, you won't have it just by virtue of working the door. So, so what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to say, okay, what have people who've experienced this violence, what's the lessons they can tell us? Because like, no one has experience in all of it. You know, you may have had a thousand fist fights, but never had a guy pull a knife on you, or never had a guy shoot at you. So you've still then got to go, well, okay, what have the people who've successfully survived been shot at or stabbed? What did they do? So n- nobody has, ex- has, has enough personal experience in everything to be able to ascertain the validity of everything. Nobody does. Having some in some area is obviously advantageous, because th- th- there is always some crossover. But, but but at some point, everybody is, is, has got to go, well, what are the people who've experienced this firsthand? What are they telling us? And then what we need to do is say, right, our training needs to reflect that. So if an individual doesn't have that personal experience, but they have talked to those that have have, uh, they've trained with those that have, they've looked at the research, they've got all that information, and their training reflects that, then they are definitely teaching self-protection in a realistic way. We, we need to learn from real life experience, which of course is what happens in the military. You know, if, if you think of soldiers and the preparation that they get, you know, they go into war fully capable of fighting a war, but they don't just drop them into a war and say, you know, if you survive, we'll see you in six months, let us know how you get on. By the way, that's the end the bullet comes out of. You know, what they do is they say, well, we've, we've fought wars, we know what fighting this kind of war is like, and therefore we'll recreate that in training so they have these skills. And um, so that's what we need to make sure that, that, that we do. We need to make sure that our uh, training and teaching reflects real life experience, even if it's not our own personal real life uh, experience. Do you want a clean, brilliant white ghee? Then use Hickatay Limited's new washing detergent. We are now applying our patented power generation technology to your wash. Made from 100% water with no active ingredients, our new washing detergent builds on the good name we have developed in the field of power generation. 100% of our satisfied clients said, My sensei prefers it and he told me I have to prefer it too. Available in all good 3K karate outlets. So the next question, I don't have a name for it because it came from Instagram. 
but it's uh, forward always forward which is a great instagram name and it goes we have the cutter we have the bunkai what's the best way to take all of that and form our own personal toolbox for self-defense so the first thing is, is when we're talking about endlessly throughout this section, uh, we need to make sure we've got those wider skills in, p- in place. The home security, the mobile security, the good personal security habits, the knowledge of the law, all that kind of stuff, which isn't within the cutter. Uh, what we then need to do is we need to structure our uh, physical stuff so we know what we're going to do first. So in, in my case, you know, that I've got a small number of techniques that I'm going to do in the first instance. So if I've... If we're in the dialogue stages, I'm going to use my preemption, right? If they're swinging at me, I'm going to do my crashing in, and then I'm going to instantly look to disengage, which loads of you have done with me before. So we have this hierarchy. We know what we're going to do first, and if that doesn't work, we know what we're going to follow it up with. And we develop uh, this small number of go-to skills that we're always going to apply in the first instance. You know, you don't want to be trying that throw you've just learned in self-defense. You want to be doing the stuff that you've used for years over and over again that you know you've got a high level of efficiency with and there's a difference between what i call my uh, practical knowledge and theoretical knowledge so my practical knowledge is the things that i know i can do pretty consistently that have a better chance of succeeding than failing you know, these are the things i know i do well you know certain strikes and certain kicks and throws and traps that i would go to in the first instance then i have what i call my theoretical knowledge well i know how to do it you know what i mean I, I can teach other people to do it but it doesn't suit my body type or it doesn't suit my, my personal preferences or what for whatever reason so it's not in there so i would say that if you've got the cutter down and you've got the bunkai down, you then need to make sure you've got all the wider self-protection skills. You need to make sure you prioritize them so you know what's what, which ones you're going to do first. And you need a small number of go-to methods that you feel are, you know, really efficient for you. And then you've got everything else to fall back on, you know, if, 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 if they don't work. But you need to make sure you're aware of what the tip of your spear is going to be. And that brings us to the end of the self-protection questions. So we'll now look at the kata and bunkai questions. So the first one's from Matt uh, from New Zealand. I've actually met Matt in Germany and the UK. So he's one of those martial artists that likes to travel. And Matt says, uh, he says, from what I've seen, your kata is pretty sharp. So I was wondering how much time you devote in class to actually teaching, practicing kata and what level of nitpicking you get to. If you're not spending much time on it in class, do you get students to do their own self-practice? Or have you found that spending time on other things, bunkai, mitt work, general partner work, etc., has the side effect of improving the student's kata performance? See, well, I'm a great believer in sharp solo kata. I remember vividly the first time I ever saw a kata. So I'd you know, be a young kid, and I've gone at the dojo. I've probably been training three or four sessions, no more than that. And one of the orange belts is, is warming up and he runs through Pinan Nidan. Now, looking back, you know, an orange belt's Pinan Nidan probably wasn't the most spectacular thing. But I remember looking at it as a young kid and like, whoa, what the hell's that thing? That just looks so cool. You know, there was that instant attraction to the aesthetics of it. And then as the years have gone by, obviously, you know, another big influence for me, another thing I really like about the martial arts is keeping it functional. So that the cutter and the functionality kind of blend it together, and which is why the cutter bunkai has always been something I've always really enjoyed and got great value from. But I've always liked solo cutter, and, and I am 
uh, particular in, in my own cutter. Uh, I've got trainer partners and students where we'll do cutter for each other. They'll look at me do it. I'll look at them do it. We'll correct one another and look for those tiny little details. I, I'm really lucky that way as well that I've had instructors who have done the same. And as we've talked about before, you know, no one's going to win or lose a fight because, you know, the hand's, you know, a millimetre in either direction. But I think developing that high level of body awareness is really important. And that, that's helped me uh, throughout my martial arts. So even when I've gone to study different martial arts that I may not have, the, you know, any kind of uh, background in or is quite dissimilar to karate, I can generally kind of get to grips with it quicker than most because i have that high level of body awareness so once i've got in my head what my body should be doing i can get my body to do it that that mind body link is quite strong through the practice of kata and i'm always impressed by my students doing kata as well i mean i should be right if i wasn't i'm not teaching them right but whenever the group just rattle through something i look at the spirit and the level of technique and i'm wow i'm really happy with that but one thing we do is we learn kata over a longer time period than i would suggest most do and the reason for that is because the bunkai is central to it so what a lot of people do is you know they do one kata for a grading and the next grading they've got another kata to learn then another then another uh, we don't do it that way you have to learn the kata and you have to learn the entire bunkai for that kata as well so that obviously means there's more to learn in addition to all the other stuff that we do that a lot of karate clubs don't do so for example they don't do any kata for the first grading uh, for 10th q to 9th q uh, but from 9th q to 8th q they do the first half of pinan shodan but they have to do our four core bunkai drills that go with it too. And then they learn the second half of the kata for the next grade, and then they have to do all eight of, of the, the bunkai drills that go with it. And we kind of continue that way, really. So by the time they get to Dan grade, typically they know the uh, five uh, pinans and the bunkai for them, uh, Nahanchi or Nahanchi uh, Shodan. And they're probably by that point able to get through Kishanku too, although there's still some extra bunkai we'd be, want to be working on them with that. And typically for us, you know, to get the black belt, we're talking six, seven years for most students. So you see, we spend a long time learning the kata, but the trade-off for that is that they've got to be able to do the kata at a very high level, as well as understanding it in great depth. If they've only got half the kata to learn, I want those stances bang on. I want that front stance to be what it should be, that cat stance to be what it should be. I want those arms in, in, in the right position. It's never going to be perfect because no one's is, but, but I want it to be of a, you know, a high quality. And the higher the grade they are, the higher the quality I, I, I require. And I do enjoy, you know, it's one of the reasons why karate is the right martial art for me. I, I like kata. I, I like the way it makes my body and my mind feel. So I, I like to train sometimes, depending on what I'm doing, uh, early in the morning. So if I do weights early in the morning, I feel it for the rest of the day. If I do cardio early in the morning, I feel it for the rest of the day. If I do kata early on, it normally leaves me feeling energised and great. It just livens me up. It, it, it awakens something within me. So I like practising kata, which is why my kata's, you know, fairly sharp. I mean, back in the day, I used to, you know, compete in kata competitions and used to do kumite too, but, you know, in the kata competitions, you know, I'd, I'd do pretty well. You know, I'd, I'd got quite a few trophies here for uh, my solo kata, you know, a bit older now. And I'd like to think my kata's higher quality, even if it's not as maybe athletically dynamic as it was. But yeah, you should have good kata. 
you know, I think it's one of the negatives sometimes when people get into bunkai is to forget that you should still have good kata too. You know, kata without bunkai is pointless, but, you know, bunkai that's done badly because you can't control your own body and have no idea of alignment and structure and efficient movement, that's problematic as well. Uh, but Matt's point as well, that it, it, kata is the central hub for us of, of everything else we do. So our our pair work is, is, is kata-based, or at least a lot of it is, apart from the consensual violence stuff. Um, our, our pad work, a lot of it's kata-based. You know? so, so therefore, when they're doing the, the pad drills, they're getting that explosiveness and that dynamic and stuff, and that re reflects back into the kata as well. So it's that integrated whole. I think sometimes when people do do that 3K thing, you know, Kata Kion and Kumite and never the three shall meet, uh, practicing your Kumite won't necessarily make your Kata any better. But if you've got sparring that's Kata-based, then it will. So I, I think that helps as, as, as well. But yeah, important to have good Kata, very important. Bob's bitch. You've been uh, quiet for a while, Bob. Any thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? Bob, keep it still so I can uh, read it. Uh, Ian is the best human being I have ever met, and his knowledge on these matters is unsurpassed. Bob, back it in! Bob, Bob, don't walk off! Bob, don't walk off! Bob, come back! You're such a diva, Bob! Oh, okay, uh, uh, fair enough. Okay, Bob wants an electronic voice so he can speak for himself. Can, can somebody sort that out for Bob? Can somebody sort that out for him? Right, on to the next question. Bob's bitch. So the next one's from uh, Nimrod Nier. He says, uh, what's your take on Ippon Ken, one knuckle punch? We can see them in many kata, sometimes a aimed upwards, as in Nipai Po, sometimes downwards, as in Seipai, or straight forwards. Is it a legitimate technique, punching with one knuckle sticking out? If not, do you have practical applications for these in every instance? If so, can you give some examples? Middle knuckle striking can be effective you know depending on where you're hitting you wouldn't want to hit someone on the jaw with that but you know solar plexus and places like that you know that under the arms into the armpits middle knuckle uh, strikes can work really well in the kata as well my experience is they're not always strikes either um so for example you know the downward ones are often enemy grabs you you, you dig it in behind the back of the jaw to push the facial nerve into the jaw it's quite painful and that will help turn the head which will help break the release you know you can also do ones where you dig it into the rib cage and vibrate up and down you know which is kind of what we see in the end of um like katas like uh, chinte and things like that you know th these kind of scissor punches which you can do with the knuckle sticking out and again you can get those effects so sometimes i think in the cutter it's not striking it's it's, it's gouges now, now, personally, uh, this would be one of these things that we're more in the theoretical knowledge box for me. Even though, you know, I've been training karate for, you know, started as a kid, I'm in my 50s now, right? So a long period of time. Uh, the middle knuckle fist isn't one that I assume naturally compared to the open-handed positions or, or a standard fist. So for self-protection, I would probably use it for gouging if it became appropriate. I don't think I personally would use it for striking. Um, so it's like anything else. You've got to decide how and when you would use it. But the, the, in the instances where it appears in the kata, I, I, I can see um, legitimate uses for, for all of them. Not always as strikes. Sometimes as like gouging into certain soft places and digging in. Hopefully to get some kind of response that will open up for more serious techniques. You know, create a reaction which will give you the space to start I I impacting. On that as well, it's just worth saying that those techniques can work and can be a useful part of your repertoire. But obviously, once the adrenal dump hits, your pain tolerance increases uh, massively. So y y when you do them in the dojo, you'll get 
partners, you know, jumping back 10 feet and you think, oh, I've got the magic trick now. If anyone grabs me, I'll just do this. It doesn't really work that way in reality, right? You'll get some reaction, but not normally the extreme reaction when you're doing it on a calm person who suddenly finds himself in, in pain. So, yeah, it's got its place, but, you know, like anything else, you've got to contextualise it within the cat there and every individual's got to decide if it's for them. For me, it's not a major part of what I do. So the next one's also from uh, Nimrod, another good question. He says, do you ever find yourself puzzled by a kata sequence, not being able to find a solid practical application for it over a long period of time? Uh, do you have such sequences that you're still trying to figure out? If so, do you use placeholder bunkai in those instances? You know, bunkai that you don't feel is absolutely solid, but will go with it until you find something more suitable in the future. So I, I don't do that. So, But there are definitely ones that, yeah, I don't know what this is. You know what I mean? I can, I'm struggling to think of the name of the cat now, but there's one that starts with a very flowery flourish, and, and I'm struggling to see if that's got any kind of function. Uh, and certainly th there's been others as well where it's taken me up the while to work them out. The one-legged standing spinny thing in Unsu. I, what the hell's that? Couldn't work it out. And then it dawned on me one day, ah, it's an inner thigh throw. I've got it. It's dead simple. Go and apply it, practice it. Works like a charm. It's super simple. But it took me a while to work that one out. So you do get ones like that, and I do have ones like that. Uh, I don't use placeholder bunkai. I'd rather say to people, I don't know. You know, I I'm unsure. I, I, I don't know what that is. At seminars, I'll sometimes get people asking, what do you think this is? Uh, and if it's not a cat I know or it's something I've not seen before, um, rather than just, you know, fob them off with that, I don't know, I'll say, look, I don't know, you know what I mean, I've never seen this particular movement before, but these are some initial thoughts, you know, if I was to start exploring this, this is what my first thoughts would be, and this is where I'd be, be looking, so hopefully it'll give them some avenues of exploration for themselves, um, but but I would never go, yeah, this'll do for now, I, I'd rather teach nothing than, than something I, I found questionable. New from Hikate Limited, Hikate Fuel Additive. We are now applying our patented power generation technology to your motor vehicle. Take mass away from a punch to add power to it? Well, take fuel away from your tank to increase your miles per gallon. Your Hikate Fuel Additive Kit comes with one electric drill and one drill bit. Apply to your fuel tank, let the fuel drain away, and by the power of Hikate, your fuel efficiency will dramatically improve. Here's how it works. My sensei says it works. What more proof do you need? Apply Hikate Fuel Additive to your tank. You know it makes no sense, but do it anyway. Next one's from Gus Rogers. He says, I have a question about the uh, middle double reinforced block, in air quotes, that is featured seven times in the Pinan Kata. From what I know, these Kata were broken down from older forms, such as Basai, Nahanchi, uh, Kongsang Kun, and Jindo. So, you know, for a fact there that Gus is a Tang Sudo practitioner. So that's uh, Kishanku, Kanku Dai, and, and Chinto for uh, Gankaku, for those not familiar with the Korean terms. But none of these forms have that particular move. Uh, is this uh, movement found in other Kata? If not, why is it so heavily used in the uh, Pinan Katas? So, yeah, is an interesting one that as well because you mainly see it in the last 
Uh, I mean, it depends on which versions, of course. But in the the ones that I do, that appears in Yodan and Goldan and not the other three. So it, it appears in those two. And my own take on the Pinankatas is that the first three form the foundation of the system they deal with breaking balance how to redirect limbs when they're not attached how to deal with limbs when they're initially attached and then sandan deals okay we're grappling now let's go i always refer to yodan and godan as the master class and the stuff that's left so that looks at less likely but still possible scenarios we haven't covered yet and variations so i see the closed fist variant uh, has, has been a variation on the open-handed knife hand. So we're looking to put those knuckles into more specific places than where they, they shoot all, you know, from the joint of the edge of the hand right down to the elbow. That's just slamming into his neck. But when handed ones, you know, we're looking to kind of hit the jaw in specific locations. So everyone's cut is a little bit different. Now, we, we have no historical records to say why they're there, but it looks to me like these are Itosus. Right, you've learnt knife hand, he's a variation. You know, it's still similar. You've got an arm across your chest and you've got one arm up, but it's it's a variation on that. It's it's, it's something new. It, you already know how to do this, so here's something else that may pr prove useful. Historically, there's nothing that I'm aware of, but that's my own personal take on it. Next one's from Eric Paquette. It says, please give examples of kata moves that have been standardized or seem generic, uh, lunge, punches, etc., and appear in multiple kata but have disparate bunkai. Uh, how did understanding contacts uh, help your personal martial arts outlook? So, so all styles do that, right? So, uh, and not across the katas too, right? So, for, for example, if, if you look at the way that um, every single knife hand is done in Shotokan, it's the same. So same with Wado, same with Shitoru, you know, they, they, they okay, we, here's another kata that came from another point in time, from another person, but has a movement in it that's similar to this one, so we'll do it exactly the same as the other one. So these movements have been standardised throughout the style variants and, and within the katas themselves as well. Um, so sometimes we, we, there are examples where a common movement might have a, a differing function. So let's take Gidambarai. You know, Gidambarai is a good example. So there are times in the kata where I think you look at this, that's clearly an armbar. Wrist held, rotating the arm, the blocking, in air quotes, arm, pushing against the elbow to drop the opponent's head down that little bit to, uh, to locate the enemy's head so you can deliver that, that strike uh, strike there. So, you know, we clearly kind of see that in some scenarios. But there are other ones where the Gidambarai is a hit to the groin. There's other ones where the Gidambarai turns and you kind of grabbing the, the, the chin and doing a neck crank to unbalance or take over. So I think what's always really important, you need to look at the, the whole sequence. Um, it's a little bit, let's liken it to handwriting. So the way you write your letter A and the way I write my letter A will be different. You know, our handwriting will not be exactly the same. But you don't know what that A means in the wider sense and you'll see what other letters it's attached to. And then, you know, oh, the word, this is what's been said. And it's kind of the same with the bunkai. You've got to not just look at the motion, which will have been standardised, and that's not a problem in my view. You know, there's lots of different ways to do it, so pick one. They're all functional. But in terms of understanding how that one fits within a given context, you've got to look at the movements before it and after it, and then decide how it would fit within that, uh, within that context.
So the next question is from Noah Legal, and if you don't know him, you should. Um, his material's really good, very active on social media, has written some great articles, shares some great material, lovely teacher manner, breaks it down really well. Uh, another guy in this practical karate community that you should really be following because he's just got some excellent stuff. He's done some really good webinars recently as well, so wherever you're based in the world, uh, Noah's uh, webinars are well worth checking out. So anyway, uh, Noah's question for this podcast, he said... Uh, how much do you tend to use stances of the kata as methods of attacking the opponent's legs? See, and that's a real good one, right? Because I there's two key functions of stances as I see it. The primary one is showing you how your weight needs to be shifted for this given technique. So it's not the stance itself that's really doing the damage. It's assuming that stance moves your body weight in the right direction, which therefore makes whatever you're doing with your hands more effective. So that's, that's the way that most stances... Um, would be applied but there are times where the legs themselves are attacking the 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 opponent in some way so so one example is that you're putting your you see like in the a lot of the cutters have these arcing steps so you're taking your foot behind the opponent's leg in order to prevent them stepping back as the arms try and drive them back and therefore they lose balance or they fall that's that's one example if in pinan sandan we have that bit where we rotate and again we've got that straight leg so we're putting the leg behind their legs driving them over they can't take a corrective step because your leg's in the way and they fall over there's also examples in the cutter where the stance is, is, is used as a more direct attack so I think of like the end of seipai is one that jumps to mind where you do the neck crank and pull them backwards you're in cat stance there so the shift of the cat stance helps pull the enemy backwards but the fact your lead leg is there with the heel off that knee pointing up means that the opponent's spine will be pulled onto that uh, onto the the knee there and there's also examples where i can think of in pinan nidan there's another where you, you push on the opponent's face for the gidambarai that moves 90 degrees and that drives them down and the lead thigh is there so they land on the thigh they kind of bridged across it which again is painful but it also means there's that falling strike you can deliver there while the sandwich between your thigh and the impact and then of course they can slide off so the kind of leaves them in a very vulnerable position so I, I don't try to get every stance to attack the opponent's legs but when i look in the kind of context i can definitely see a lot of instances where yeah that's what's going on that the legs have been used here to attack in in some way standing on feet as well as another example i can think of so um quite a lot but again I, but i would say primarily the stances are about weight shift there are some examples where the stance is attacking the opponent in, in, in some way, um, but that's less frequent, I would think, than the, um, the body weight um, uh, shifting. Bob's bitch. Here's the electronic voice you asked for, Bob. So what's your thoughts on this one? I think it's more nuanced than that, Ian. Oh, this is ridiculous. Why have you given me this voice? It's fine, Bob. You know, what were you saying? I hate you. You know this, right? I don't think that's relevant, Bob. Quit with the insult and make your point. I despise you with every fibre of my being. Is there any settings on this? Change it to whatever you want, Bob. And I'll come back to you later. Right then, next question. Bob's bitch. So the next question's from Donaher. He said, when Ankoi Tosu simplified, edited, uh, Kashanku, Kankudai, Kasokandai to create the Pinans for elementary schools, do you feel this was done to really show self-defense moves or just moves slash directions designed to teach the kids the basics? Therefore, moves are often repeated on both sides. So the, the reason we often see movements uh, repeated on both sides, and, and this is clearly there in, in the record, we've got... Uh, Taguchi talking about it and Mabuni 
talks about it in depth, that the angle in the kata represents the angle you are assuming relative to the enemy. So when we see moves on uh, left and right, or right and left, what it's essentially saying is, depending on which arm you're in contact with, you would shift to the enemy's left, away from the other arm, or vice versa. So the reason they repeat it on both sides is because it represents the two possible angles of shift. Uh, now, it's commonly said that Itosu created the pinans for the schools, but I, I don't think that's true. We can say that the finalised version of them was taught in the schools, but there's lots of records of them being taught way before that. Motobu, for example, uh, talks about learning early versions of these, as do others. So he was teaching them to his adult students as well. And I think one of the key things on this is what Funakoshi says of them. He said that uh, once you have learnt these five kata, you can be confident of your ability to defend yourself in most situations. The meaning of the name should be taken in that regard. That's from Karate Do Kyohan. So, Funakoshi is clear, they are a self-defence system. Uh, I also think that when he says the meaning of the name should be taken in that regard, this is something you can try yourself. If you take the characters for Pinan or Hian and put them into uh, Google Translate, get it to run it with Japanese as the language, and it'll say something like peaceful or tranquil. Do it with Chinese, and it says safety. So what Funakoshi is telling us there is these characters can be read two ways. Read them the way that infers safety. I can't help but escape the suspicion, and that's all it is, that's the reason Itosu settled on that final name, because it has this double meaning. So for the adult students who are still thinking of karate as Chinese hand, uh, they have the Chinese reading of safety. For the students learning these katas in the schools as a primarily a form of exercise they weren't created for that but they were used for that there's a big difference between cutters practiced by children uh, in a childish way if you like and and cutters created for children but in that japanese education system they'll read the characters as peaceful so there's a clever double meaning in the name there as well so yeah pinan hian's definitely self-defense forms So the next one's from Colby Pryor. He said, now that you're older and more focused on your long-term health, have you ever considered adding Sanchin or Tensho to your practice? Uh, not for the health benefits. I, I think if you take the katas Sanchin, Tensho and Naihanchi, they're the three core kata, um, which is what Miyagi said as well, that they're the kind of three core kata of, of karate. So I'm familiar with them. I don't practice them very regularly, though. Uh, and in terms of health, I think the other katas would serve that better. So if I think of something like Kishanku, which has got quite a lot of movements in it, it's quite long, so there's a cardiovascular element to it. Uh, and there's lots of like dropping, lifting, pushing. There's lots of good movement in there. Um, therefore, I think that is going to be more helpful keeping me mobile and fit and healthy for as long as possible as opposed to Sanshin and Tensho which are quite short and not that physically uh, demanding so yeah that would be my take on that one Next one's from Chris Hansen of Karate Unity. Yet another guy that if you're not following on 
YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. You know, Chris is really active and has some great material. So Chris is another one that you sh should be following. But Chris said, I would like to know what kind of fits your current stage in your martial arts journey. For example, currently, because of various joint injuries, I have turned to katas like Rohai and Pasai Matsubayashiru because of their inherently circular movements. I find these easier on my joints and easier to make bunkai modifications. And I wonder if you felt the same way about kata. If so, which one would you pick to fit you at the moment? I, I don't think there's anything physically that would make me lean towards one more than any others and like i mean i like all the cutters that i do but but i, I definitely have favorites for a time ones that i'm enjoying a lot at that moment at the moment the one i'm enjoying a lot would be niseishi or nijishiho and the reason for that is simply because it's a cutter we require uh, for third dan and the bunkai for it too uh, we have quite a few second dans in the dojo at the moment so i'm working on it a lot with them and it's kind of really kindled my interest for it again so so that's the one at the moment but just for interest not mainly for health benefit Next question is from Pete Lee. He said, Cypher Cutter, what do you make of it? I like Cypher. I think it's a really good, direct, uh, applicable cutter. Some great techniques in it. You can make some beautiful flow drills out of it. So Cypher is one that I, I really like. I think it's of that Naha line. It's a great, great cutter. And then we've got a question from Lee Sims. Again. <laughs> You should be following Lee stuff as well. Um, Lee again, very active on on uh, Instagram and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, again, excellent material. Um, really good at combining that traditional karate element with modern day self defence. So Lee Sims, L E I G H S I double M S to find him. Uh, another guy that you should be uh, following because he's got some great material to share with you. So this is a really good question, this one. He said, how far can one deviate from the solo form of the cutter technique sequence before your application, whilst perhaps effective, can't be considered to be the practical application bunkai of that technique sequence? So I think that's a really good one. So to give an extreme example, which you often see in 3K circles, they, they radically alter it. You see this a lot in cutter competitions where, you know, the, the movement's got an agiyuki, so they'll use an agiyuki to block a punch, and then they'll put a jumping, turning, back kick on it, or a throw on it, and, okay, it's so different now, I, I, I'm not following it. You know, I, mean, I can't see how that is bunkai for the kata. I think, though, we need to remember that the bunkai is there to illustrate a principle. So within the cutter, it's not saying this is the only thing you should ever do. It's saying this is a good example of the kind of things you can do. So it, it's principle-based learning. To, so to expand on that a little bit, you couldn't make a cutter with every single joint lock in existence in it. Right, it would be ridiculously long and pointless. But you could make a cutter that had a few good examples of how you can lock the various joints, and having understood the principles, that will then become your jumping off point. So if you're doing an entirely different lock based on the same principles, 
then that's still extracted from the cutter, but it wouldn't be the analysis, which is what Bunkai means, of that specific sequence. So I think if we're going to be true to it, then the Bunkai should be very close, bearing in mind you'll have to vary a little bit because everyone's different. If you're doing it on a slightly taller guy, it'll be slightly different than if you're doing it on somebody shorter. But, you know, you might have to adapt it because they were pulling rather than pushing. There's those kind of adaptations that are givens, really. But taking those into account, it, it should be very close um, to what is in the, uh, the cutter itself. However, that shouldn't prohibit us from looking at the various ways in which those principles can be applied, because that too is part of Katabunkai. I mean, that, as a karateka, that's how I work. If someone shows me, let's run with locks again, someone shows me a lock I've never seen before, the first thing I do is go, right, what is this close to? What do I already know, you know, that's like this? And then when I end up teaching that lock, I'll go, right, you already know this one from the kata. You can see this one's got a lot in common with it. So to help the students realise it's the same principles in play yet again. End of part one.